Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And the words of our text, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And we continue to the end of the psalm. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Beloved in the Lord, one of the things that defines a Christian is hope, hope in Christ, hope for the future. And that is because we know who is in charge. We know that the plans of this world cannot be implemented apart from the counsel and the wisdom of God. The nations rage and the kingdoms plot in vain. In the 1920s and 1930s, there was a group of men in Frankfurt, Germany, known as the Frankfurt School. They had a vision for the future, and in order to implement that vision, they planned to attack the institutions of the church and the family. They did this through promoting various perversions, such as abortion, free love, and homosexuality. They wanted to be freed from the duty that God calls one to, toward parents, toward the church, toward society. They called institutions such as the church and the family chains. Ultimately, they were guilty of ingratitude toward the gifts of God. When Hitler came to power in Germany, many of these men, they were, many of them were Jewish, so they moved to the United States. In the States, as well as Canada, their influence expanded, and their intellectual children are highly influential in our universities and in our government. Today, they're generally called cultural Marxists because they took Marx's critique of business and economy and they applied it to the family and the church. They rage, even today, against God and the order that he has given to the world. When we look at the world around us, 
the celebrations of the freedom to kill babies, the celebration of the pride of homosexuals. This is at least in part, not only, but at least in part due to their work, their plotting. But have they really won? Have they broken God's bonds apart? I bring you the word of the Lord under the theme, God installs his king in Zion. First, we're going to see God's decree. Second, God's gift. And finally, God's promise. Now, our psalm was written in a very different context. The kings of the earth, that is, the kings of Edom and Philistia and Ammon and others, were plotting against the king in Jerusalem. Most likely, these are kings who have bent the knee to David, possibly to Solomon or another heir of David. And they're seeking a way out. They're seeking to overthrow the king. God's king. The problem is that this, this king is the representative of Yahweh, the God of heaven earth, and earth. There's nothing good about throwing off the rule of this king. This king represents the justice and mercy of God. To reject him is to reject justice and mercy. To reject what is good for your people. God laughs, just as he laughs at those who mock him and our Lord Jesus Christ today. Those who desire to push off the bonds of God have so little understanding of the way things really are. As we seek to understand this psalm, we need to understand that it is sung by David, but it will also later be taken on the lips of Christ. David says in verse 7, And I will tell of the decree. He sings of God's declaration of how God installed him as king. At the same time, the son of David also takes these words on his lips. He says, I will tell of the decree. The decree that has installed him at the right hand of our God and Father. And this is God's decree. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The son of God is the one who will receive all the inheritance, all the authority and the glory and the honor of God. Now let's place this into the story, story that the book of Psalms is telling. To do that, we have to go back to David. The righteous man of Psalm 1, you know, blessed is the man who walks not in the way of the ungodly, has become the anointed one of Psalm 2. Think of David's life for a moment. David lives before God as a righteous man, a righteous man, sometimes chased in the wilderness by King Saul, waiting for what has been given to him, the kingdom of Israel. And when the right moment God comes, God makes him king over Judah and Israel. 
Even then, David must go through a number of trials before he becomes fully king, before he is actually sent on Zion's throne. The book of Psalms explores the themes of both the righteous man and the anointed one, or the Messiah. David is both. He's a man after God's own heart, and as such, he is declared as the king over the nation of Israel. The kingship of David becomes very important in that David is adopted as God's son. God declares, you are my son. It was actually quite common for the kings near Israel to declare themselves to be sons of God. Pharaoh was called a son of God. This gave them ultimate authority over their people. But David is truly adopted as God's son. David is exclusively God's son. The other kings may claim to be God's son, but in reality, if they are wise, they will bow to David and to his offspring as the true representative of God's justice and mercy on earth. And all this is done by God's decree. You can see this decree in 2 Samuel 7. God says to David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Even as David was a son to God, so David's son, God declares, shall be to me a son. And I will be to him a father, says God. Our God is a God of truth. He's faithful God who keeps his promises. This is God's decree. He will be true to himself. He will keep an heir for the throne of David. But David's fails. David's house fails. David's house almost disappears following the exile. The nations instead bend first to Nebuchadnezzar, then to Cyrus, then to Alexander the Great and the Romans. But David's house continues. It's underground for 400 years. But God keeps his promises to David. An heir of David will be God's anointed once again. An heir of David will be a true son of God. How much more powerful are these words when we hear them spoken of Christ, when we know that these words are spoken by our Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, in heaven at the Father's right hand. God has said to Jesus, you are my beloved son. We see that at the baptism of Christ, where God declares this before all Israel. Jesus is the true son of God, the true king, the one who inherits the throne of David and all that comes with that position. But there's even more going on here. Jesus is uniquely the Son of God. He's the only begotten Son of God, as we know from the book of John. David was adopted. According to 2 Samuel 7, God took him from the sheepfold. Jesus Christ was sent from the Father's side. He is the Word who comes from the Father's side to take on flesh. He takes on flesh as the Son of David, as the Christ. 
the Anointed One. In David's time, God said to him, Today I have begotten you. Our Lord Jesus Christ has heard these words from his Father from all eternity, but he has also heard them in a new and unique way as the man Jesus Christ who received the anointing of David, who received the kingdom of David. And now he has ascended and taken the throne of David, the true throne of David, which is in heaven and not on earth. The kings of this earth plot against Jesus Christ just as they plotted against David. We saw that in our introduction. More particularly, they plot against the bride of Christ. They try to steal from and destroy Jesus' beloved bride, his church. They can't reach Jesus' physical body anymore, so they attack the body that has subjected themselves to him. They want to break from the teaching of the church. They hate the righteousness that they are called to, and they express it in their perversity. And God laughs. Why? Because his anointed one is at his right hand. Therefore, we should feel safe. Our lives, as Paul says in Colossians 3, are hidden in God, in Christ. If God is for us, if this anointed one is for us, who do we need to be afraid of? That brings us to our second point, God's gift. Having declared that his anointed one is his true and beloved son, God tells his son, Ask of me and I will make the nations as your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. We don't really fully get this in our hyper-individualistic culture, but the son receives the wealth and the glory of the father. Of course, the son needs to show love and honor to his father in order to receive such a gift. The son, our Lord Jesus Christ, has shown such love and honor, pledging obedience to his heavenly father as the anointed of David. We see Christ's obedience in the Gospels, his constant plea that he has come to do his father's will. And the father, out of warmth and love, for his son, gives him, offers him everything. And if God gave David glory and wealth and victory over his enemies, if he gave Solomon wisdom and piled upon that wealth and peace and long life, how much more for his son, who showed a perfect obedience, who came from the father's side in order to show the world how much the father loved them. And God does give his son all power, authority, and glory. We saw that in Revelation 5. Nobody has the authority to open the scroll, but the lamb does. The lamb takes out and reaches out and takes that gift that the father has given him. And heaven responds, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. In Revelation 5, the Lamb who has shed his blood for the saints may freely unseal the scroll. That scroll carries in it judgments for the saints and for those who attack the saints. Because 
And he may, he may do this because he has been given all judgment as the great judge over all the earth. Ask of me, says the Father. The Father will not deny his beloved Son anything he asks for. We need to remember that as we go through life. The Son sits next to the Father and he's, he's interceding for our sake. He prays for his sheep. He protects them and preserves them in the midst of enemies all about. For the Son has received all authority, power, and glory from the Father. God has set his anointed Son as King of kings and Lord of lords. All men are called to bow to him. We may wonder. We don't see it all under his feet. If all things are under his feet, we may wonder how so wicked an idea as cultural Marxism is able to have so much influence in our society today. God tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that we don't yet see all things under his feet. The wicked still have a huge influence and the righteous often suffer the attacks of the wicked. But even though we don't see all things under his feet, we know that he is ruling. And through the witness of the church, he is, he is, calling, of the kings, he is calling the kings of this earth to be wise, to kiss the sun, lest they perish in the way. The kings of the earth kiss the sun by joining the church in worship of the sun. They are called by the Son, by us, the body of the Son, to submit to the Son. This should give the church confidence in our mission here on earth. And it is by this confidence, by this faith, that God brings the church victory in her struggles. She struggled against the Roman Empire. She struggled with the errors of the Roman Catholic Church. And now she struggles with secularism. Brothers and sisters, the future may not be easy. It may be very dark, but our Lord Jesus Christ continues to rule. And we can have confidence that he will triumph over current enemies that plot against his church. The Lord has given all power and authority to our Lord the Lord who died and rose in our place. We can shout with the joy of Paul. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And we can go out confident in his love for us. Now, I'm not teaching some sort of naive triumphalism here. The thought that we can merely name it and claim it as if God's blessing were something we could take hold of and fully possess in one moment. As if by merely exercising our faith for a moment, wicked governments will come toppling down. God has not chosen, us to, give a, has not chosen to give us everything at once, but God calls us to imitate our Lord Jesus we are to have the mind he had in humbling himself before God. Yes, we have everything in him, just as, just as Christ had the declaration of God's love and the certainty of God's favor at his baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. 
Yet God called Christ, his beloved son, to take the way of suffering and death. And as we hear so often in the Gospel of Mark, God calls us to take up our cross and follow him. God sets a pattern for us, the way of Job, suffering before God, and God's use of Job for his glory. The way of David, how through David's sufferings, chased by Saul in the wilderness, God trained David for kingship and manifested his glory. And most poignantly, in his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ knew that he was God's beloved Son, even as he faced the rejection of his friends, even as he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does it mean to take up our cross? It means to take on the responsibility of bearing Christ to the world. That means a constant fight against sin. That might mean subjecting ourselves to the taunts of our neighbors. That might mean real sacrifice and showing our love for one another and for those outside. Taking up our cross means taking up our responsibility as prophet, priest, and king. Christ took up his literal cross as the one anointed to die for the sake of the world. That's not our specific calling. But in Christ, we do have the anointing of his office. We do have the office of witness. And God will give us the opportunity to exercise that office toward our families, towards one another, and to those who are our neighbor. And don't fail to recognize those opportunities when they come your way. Seek them out as a people who love to do good works for your master. In Christ, God's promise here is to you too. Ask of me and I shall give the nations as an inheritance. Remember Christ's words, the meek shall inherit the earth. Having received Christ's anointing, we know that even as we suffer, we have the favor of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what gives us the certainty in our witness to the world as we witness for Christ. And God uses this witness in order to bring the gospel to the world. And that brings us to God's promise. The next line of our psalm. Verse 9, you shall break them, or you will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. It's funny to think of that image of breaking and dashing the nations as a picture of the gospel going forth, especially as we've just spoken of the gospel witness being accomplished through taking up our cross. But as we've often explored in the Old Testament, pictures of war are also pictures of the spread of the gospel. This is especially apparent in our reading from Revelation 19, where Christ strikes the nations of the earth. 
He's followed by his church, and it is actually through his church that he is doing this slaying. He is called there the Word of God. The slaying is the conversion of the nations. And Revelation 19 actually alludes to Psalm 2 and the rod of iron that our Lord carries. Psalm 2 verse 9 gives us the actions of the Messiah, the begotten Son of God who has asked for the nations as an inheritance. He has, he has received them, and now he takes them, breaking them and shattering them. If you look at the history of the church, you will see that there's something literal about this. Christ doesn't literally go out breaking the nations. But in the history of those church, those, those nations that eventually end up plotting against Christ, plotting against his church, are eventually broken up and shattered. Considering the strength of this king, the psalmist counsels the nations in verse 10, be wise. And that's my counsel to you as well. Be wise. This is the king who has all authority and power, but he's also a good king. Happy and blessed are those who trust in him. We're back to Psalm 1. The happy man looks to the law of God. The happy man finds his sustenance, finds his life in God. More than that, the happy man looks to the anointed one of God, the anointed one that God has set in Zion, not the literal Mount Zion in Jerusalem anymore, but the spiritual Mount Zion. The man is happy who looks to this anointed one of God and trusts in him. Those who do not receive wrath. The sword of the word of God has two edges. We either receive it with joy and enter into the blessedness of our Savior, or we reject it and go to damnation, hell, and gnashing of teeth. Those are the only two options. Be wise, people of God. Kiss the Son. Submit to the Son. Exercise your calling in unity with Him, seeking to do His will and exercise His righteousness. This Lord not only died for you, but is actively reigning. Any attack on Him is an attack on us. Any attack on us is an attack on Him. And he is the one with all the authority, the honor, and the power. Think about what that means for a moment. In our worship, we lift our hearts to his throne and kiss the Son, showing that we submit to him, and we love him, and we wish to obey him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. All glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's respond by singing together from hymn 81. We'll sing verses 1 through 4 and 6.